Welcome back to Historical Context. Today, uh, we're going to talk about Columbus and his fourth and final voyage. I want to note that prior to beginning, we left off the last episode with Christopher Columbus being arrested in late 1500 and removed as governor of Hispaniola and sent back to Spain. Columbus was able, when he returned to Spain, to plead with the the king and queen and have his criminal charges essentially dropped. He did not serve any time in jail. He was not charged with the crime. It took a lot of work, but he was able to put together a small fleet to return to the New World, and he left Spain on April 2nd, 1502. He went down to the Canary Islands, and then he crossed at the Canary Islands and into the West Indies after a period of 16 days. By arriving in Martinique, modern-day Martinique, on June 15th, a hurricane in Martinique had forced Columbus to seek shelter, and he ended up staying there much longer than he anticipated. He left and actually went to Hispaniola, where he was not welcome on June 29th, and in his journal he writes that he was forbidden to go on shore. Now, a new governor had replaced Bobadilla in Hispaniola. His name was Nicolas de Ovando, and he had taken over... But sentiment regarding Columbus had not changed. It was still very negative. He was not liked. He left Santo Domingo and found his way to Azua, sailed from there to Yakimo, which is in present-day uh, Haiti. And he did this to escape another storm, and he left there on, on July 14th. Now, ironically, at this time, the storm hit Hispaniola head-on, and the storm killed both Francisco Roldan and Bobadilla. Bobadilla was heading back to Spain. He had been recalled back to Spain for something else. Both Roldan, who was an opponent and a uh, rebel against Columbus, and Bobadilla were killed. From there, Columbus heads west, and he ends up in modern-day Honduras on August 14th. Now, in his fourth voyage, it's, it's a little shorter, a little different. There are some translation issues, and in fact, in our first quote, the translation comes across as saying that Columbus faced 88 days of horrible storms. The timeline suggests that it was actually closer to 28 days, but we'll go ahead and use the original translation. So Columbus begins by talking about the terrible weather he has faced to get to Honduras. 88 days did this fearful tempest continue, during which I was at sea and saw neither sun nor stars. My ships lay exposed with sails torn and anchors rigging, cables, boats, and a great quantity of provisions lost. My people were very weak and humbled in spirit, many of them promising to lead a religious life, and all making vows and promising to perform pilgrimages, while some of them would frequently go to their messmates to make confession. 
It's like the old adage of people who are in moments of duress and they say, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll be a church-going man or church-going woman. Those types of things occurred all the way back in the early 16th century as well as Columbus writes. He goes on to, uh, in addition to this, he goes on to describe further despair. He says, such is my fate that the 20 years of service through which I have passed with so much toil and danger have profited me nothing. And at this very day, I do not possess a roof in Spain that I could call my own. If I wish to eat or sleep, I have nowhere to go but to the inn or tavern, and most times lack wherewith to pay the bill. So Columbus at this point, he's nearing the end of his career, he's nearing the end of his life. He is essentially homeless and broke, and it's really a, a sad state of affairs for him, quite frankly, but we're fortunate that he does write about this. And he ends up going down the east coast of Central America and continues to battle just nonstop bad weather. And he writes, All this time the waters from heaven never ceased, not to say that it rained, for it was like a repetition of the deluge. The men were at this time so crushed in spirit that they longed for death as a deliverance from so many martyrdoms. Twice already had the ships suffered loss in boats, anchors, and rigging, and were now lying bare without sails. So clearly this voyage is in a state of despair rather early, and there's a lot of problems going on, and Columbus is desperate to find what he originally was looking for, and that is India and Indonesia area. And that's why, even though he stops at these couple of islands on the way there, he is going as far west as he can, and he ends up in Central America. And on January 6, 1503, he arrives in Veragua, which is what he calls it, in, in, and he is in a total state of exhaustion. His health is not doing well. He befriends a tribe there led by somebody by the name of Quibian, Quibian uh, being the chief of this tribe. Columbus establishes a, a settlement, and uh, to give you an idea of where Columbus is, Quibian tells him, if you go a short distance west on land, you'll find that there is an inlet to another ocean. So Columbus is in modern-day Panama, and Quibian is telling Columbus about the Pacific Ocean. And Columbus has this settlement established, but he has doubts. Let's read. I plainly saw that harmony would not last long, for the natives are of a very rough disposition, and the Spaniards very encroaching. And moreover, I had taken possession of land belonging to the Quibian. He resolved upon burning the houses and putting us to death, but his project did not succeed, for we took him prisoner. So he takes uh, the, this chief prisoner and a few other people. These, these prisoners would eventually escape, and Columbus, also in the writings, did not feel comfortable heading west because he had been warned that there were hostile tribes in the inlet of Panama. Had Columbus gone west, perhaps he would have, through land, gotten to the 
Pacific Ocean. But he was so ill-equipped at the time, and frankly, had he not taken the advice of locals and done that, he may have very well ended up in a precarious situation that in which we would have never heard from him ever again, and the history of Columbus would have been that he would have been lost in in Panama. So there isn't much. Columbus continues on his journey, and it's it's actually hard to figure out where he is. He's heading towards South America, but by April of of 1503, Columbus writes that shipworms, which are something that erodes the uh, the the strength of ships had eaten the ship's wood so badly that they could scarcely be kept above water. Columbus comes upon a uh, an inlet, goes into this inlet, tries to get out of a river, but he is he is attacked. And he writes, the Indians collected themselves together in great numbers and made an attack upon the boats, and at length massacred the men. All hope of escape was gone. There's a lot of, obviously, despair as we read, but Columbus is very sick at the time, so as he's writing, it's very, very hard to comprehend exactly what's going on. He says, I called upon your highnesses, war captains, in every direction for help, but there was no reply. So the descriptiveness and the preciseness of these attacks uh, is not evident in these letters because of Columbus suffering from fever, fatigue. He is of what would be considered advanced age at the time, being in his early 50s, but he is able to escape. He has two boats that he escapes, so he is on two boats and arrives in Cuba on May 13, 1503. He gets supplies, but again is battling the weather and tries to go to Hispaniola even though he's forbidden because he needs help, and he ends up at the end of June in Jamaica. Now, in June of 1503, this part of Jamaica did not have a settlement, so Columbus was marooned on an island with natives, and the ships were in such poor condition that when he tried to leave the island, he ended up right back. So Columbus, his fourth voyage, has now landed him marooned on the island of Jamaica and he writes and so now he has this he has this voyage log turns into a a letter pleading for help if your highnesses would graciously please to send to my help a ship of about 64 tons with 200 quintals of biscuits and other provisions there would then be sufficient to carry me and my crew from Española to Spain I send this letter by means of and by the hands of Indians. It will be a miracle if it reaches its destination. So Columbus is sending this through the hands of Indians in the hope that it gets back to Spain because he is marooned in Jamaica and trying to get back. And it's just, it's incredible that this voyage has turned so badly, so quickly for him and essentially has been uh, a, a total total disaster. Now, Columbus does go in the letter to this very vague mystery that he opens the door, and, and while it doesn't have any answers, I want to share it with everybody because it's just a, it's a weird thing to have in a letter. Of the other matter that I refrain from saying, I have already said why I kept silent. 
I do not speak so, neither do I say that I make a threefold affirmation in all that I have ever said or written, nor that I am at the source. So there's some mystery going on there that Columbus does not want. He, I guess he feels at peace saying that he said what I've said and, and I'm not going to say anything else about it, but it is clearly between him and the royal court of Spain to figure out. Columbus goes on in his letter to say that he believes there's more gold in the area of Panama. The gold exists in an excess of all the other areas that he has explored. I find it very interesting here that he goes on to reflect on his time in Hispaniola, modern-day Haiti, and in the letter he calls it Espanola. There's different translations. But he says, I never think of Espanola without shedding tears. These settlements are now in a languid state, although not dead, and the malady is incurable, or at least very extensive. Those who left the Indies, avoiding the toils consequent upon the enterprise, and speaking evil of it and me, have since returned with official appointments. So he essentially is saying that the people who spoke poorly of me have, have ended up leaving and coming back and are a part of the leadership that is the problem going on there. So I think he's calling people like Bo Bedella and others hypocrites in that they criticize his uh, his leadership but then turn around and and do an even poor job in the end. He continues to reflect and I'll read here. For seven years I was at your royal court where everyone to whom the enterprise was mentioned treated it as ridiculous. He's talking about the idea of going to the new world essentially. So it was treated as ridiculous, but now there is not a man down to the very tailors who does not beg to become a discoverer. There is reason to believe that they make the voyage only for plunder and that they are permitted to do so to the great disparagement of my honor and the detriment of the undertaking itself. Who could believe that a poor foreigner would have risen against your highnesses in such a place without any motive or argument on his side, without even the assistance of a prince upon which to rely, but on the contrary, amongst your own vassals and natural subjects, and with my son staying at your royal court? So Columbus is saying two things here. First, in the first reading, he's saying, it's amazing that seven years ago, coming to the New World was this ridiculous idea. I had to fight to do it. And now there's not a single individual who wouldn't drop what they're doing and go. And that's because of, of gold, essentially, and the trade that's been set up. But then he goes on to say, you know, how could I be working against the Spanish crown, which is likely what led to his ouster to begin with. People on the political side didn't necessarily say bad things were happening on the island, but they probably said Columbus is working against you. And Columbus says, how could I do that when I've left my children in the royal court and don't have a prince, which was the typical way you would overthrow a kingdom back in the day. You had somebody in the bloodline working on your side. I don't have any of that. So how could you uh, say that? And I think these issues were worked out be between 
Columbus and the monarchy between 1500 and 1502, but he's reiterating them here in the hopes of finding enough favor to get some rescue coming back. So Columbus concludes his letter, and this is the last time we hear from him. I did not come out on this voyage to gain to myself honor or wealth, for at that time all hope of such a thing was dead. I do not lie when I say that when I went to your highnesses with honest purpose of heart and sincere zeal in your cause, I humbly beseech your highnesses that if it pleases God to rescue me from this place, you will graciously sanction my pilgrimage to Rome and other holy places. May the Holy Trinity protect your highnesses' lives and add to the prosperity of your exalted position. So this letter was written in 1503, in July of 1503, and ultimately Columbus's voyage takes him through the southern part of the Caribbean, down the Yucatan Peninsula, along the coast of Panama, back up to Cuba when he was escaping, down to Jamaica, marooned in Jamaica, and eventually he does make his way out. He does send an aid request to Hispaniola and it is denied. And Columbus would have to wait for an entire year to get help. Help arrives to Jamaica on June 29, 1504. And Columbus leaves on this aid ship or aid fleet and heads back to Spain. And he arrives in Spain on November 7, 1504. He would never return to the Caribbean. This was his last trip. Queen Isabella was sick, she would eventually die, and Ferdinand would be the sole monarch of Spain. And Isabella was, uh, I believe, Columbus's chief supporter, so with her death dashed any hopes of Columbus returning. Columbus would spend his final days arguing with the Spanish government that they owed him that one-tenth share per his contract. The Spanish government would contend that his termination as governor of the Indies rendered the contract void. So Columbus died pretty much in a state of despair on May 20th, 1506. It was believed that he was 54 years old at the time. And had you asked Columbus on his deathbed about his legacy, I believe he would have given you a story of great disappointment. It would end up taking multiple generations for Columbus's legacy to rise in an area in which we see it today as him being the founder or the discoverer of the New World, of the Western Hemisphere. Columbus's children and grandchildren would fight the Spanish government for that one-tenth share, and a settlement would be reached where his grandchildren would actually be placed in leadership positions in the government of, uh, of the Caribbean in different capacities. Now, where does this leave us? We have an episode left for the journey of Christopher Columbus, but he has passed away. So what goes on? Well, there's a writing that occurs subsequent to Columbus's death that I believe casts a much more direct light on his legacy than these previous six episodes even. And we're going to explore that. It doesn't occur uh, 
long after his death. It actually occurs from a gentleman within his lifetime and somebody who is very central to our story overall. And so on our next episode, we're going to talk about this writing and we're going to reflect on the legacy of Christopher Columbus. So I hope to see you next time on Historical Context. Mm -hmm.